Well, hello, and thanks for joining us on another episode of A Better Conversation. I'm Gus Simpson here with Aaron Couch. How are you doing this morning, Aaron? Doing good. Fighting a cold, probably going to cough a little. All right. Well, we'll we'll try to work around that as much as possible. I'm, I'm just feeling tired this morning. It's, tell you. <laughs> it is early today. Yeah, doing this podcast has been good for uh, giving me some motivation to get out of bed a little earlier. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking a bit about literary genres. Uh, after our two-part episode talking about uh, biblical context, contextual hermeneutic, uh, we want to do a follow-up around kind of a specific element in that, that we didn't really feel like we had enough time to really tackle as in-depth as we'd like to. And uh, probably still only scratching the surface of this, um, but at least it kind of gives you a little better idea of, of kind of some of these different genres and how we should approach them. Right, Aaron? Yeah. Yeah, this is this is a good topic to tackle as a as a kind of a breakout piece of that whole bigger conversation to begin with. Um, by the way, if for those of you that heard that two part series, if there's a piece of that you want more explanation on, email us and we'd be happy to yeah fire out a piece of that, pull it apart, and and um, have an episode dedicated to that. But yeah, so Aaron, uh, just just for context here. Uh, what, why is it important to understand these genres, and what, what are some things that you should kind of keep in mind as you're reading a passage, knowing it is a specific genre? Yeah, so again, and I, I would begin with what Brad said, nobody likes to be taken out of context. Mm-hmm. So when a writer writes the, a book of the Bible, and there's uh, all these different writers, all these different books, uh, you know, 1,500 years, 66 books, 35 writers, that like there's all these questions that they're specifically addressing in this world. And and just think about how far has time uh, over the last 200 and whatever years of our country mm-hmm. been in existence, yeah. 230, 40 years. Um, how much has culture changed mm-hmm. over that? 200-year time yeah, span. Now, yeah, it's huge. branch that out over a 1,500-year time yeah. span, <clears throat> and you can imagine that the people who are writing at the beginning are writing from a perspective that's probably vastly different than the people who are writing mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah. <clears throat> and so it's really critical for us to understand that genre influences how we understand um, where they're driving at. And so they have an agenda when they're writing, absolutely writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no question about the inspiration of Scripture. But these people are writing with an agenda, and that agenda takes shape in the genre that they choose to use. Mm-hmm. Am I just telling a story? Am I recording an event? Am I wanting to make a point? So I want to write a poem about a point so we can wrestle with that. I mean, all those mm-hmm. things are influenced by... Um, genre and and their their context around that helps it take shape yeah well i think in your explanation that you got another good point i think for people which is i mean these books were written by by people in a place in a time it wasn't just dropped out of heaven by by god one day yeah yeah i uh i i like the phrase real people real place real time Mm -hmm. um and understanding who that is helps us to be able to put back because and we talked a little bit about this last week the the biblical writers are writing with a lot of cultural assumptions in mind mm-hmm. um they're going to assume that you know things that they're not going to take the time to fill in the gaps on and some of that stuff we're aware of some of it we're not and so yeah putting it back in its context is significant cool. so we're going to go through eight different literary genres today 
Uh, first one is a historical narrative. Uh, somewhat self-explanatory, but why don't you unpack this a little bit? Yeah, so I'm just going to read a recorded definition of that. Writers turn an event in, into a story by carefully selecting and organizing details so that the lessons to be learned from the event become more apparent. To that end, the author makes use of plot design, narration, time manipulation, and characterization, and that's important. So what do you mean by, uh, say, plot design? Yeah, so they will shape the plot of the story and how it folds unfolds to us in a way that is about the point they're making, not the order of the mm-hmm. events. Um, and I would give you a huge example of that. One is um, – if you read the story of Abraham and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael, which I think we talked a little bit about this in the in the other context, have, yeah. um, it, it's all out of order. Um, the story of David and Goliath, uh, Saul gives David his armor, and it's too much for him to wear. And yet, in the story right before that, he's or in a story before that, he's Saul's armor bearer. Like the the chronology doesn't seem to line up. Um, it's because they don't care about chronology. I mean, it's not that <laughs> chronology isn't significant, but that's not their primary objective. Mm-hmm. Making the point that they're trying to make is that now they don't universally do that, but but to see things feel out of order for mm-hmm. them is not surprising mm-hmm. at all. We see this even in the Gospels, and we know um, we, we're very comfortable with the Gospels doing that. And, and it seems weird that then if we um, apply that to the rest of the Jewish writers. Um, all of a sudden now we're struggling with that. But, uh, you know, just the cleansing of the temple in in the Gospels. John has it at the beginning of his Gospel. Matthew has it at the end of his Gospel. Mm-hmm. And, and the question is, is there one that's being placed in two different places on the timeline, or is there two? And we have to wrestle with this this idea, and and only one was significant to mm-hmm. each one of the Gospel writers. And, and both of those are possibilities. <clears throat> but from a Jewish perspective, they're not concerned about the timeline. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and even in the Gospels, and you know, I mean, there's there's stuff that's left out of one Gospel and is in another. Yep. And, you know, events that the writers chose to highlight. Yeah. Uh, well, and Jesus that's life. John. At the end of John, he's like, if we wrote everything <laughs> Jesus did, the world couldn't contain the volumes. Yeah. But these things are written that you might believe and know who He is, mm-hmm. and that that's the piece that I think we keep we have to keep coming back to that we're recording history. We are, but we're recording history with an agenda that helps us understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. So it would be safe to say that in these historical narrative pieces, uh, they shouldn't necessarily be approached like you would say, like a history textbook. Uh, at least not a Western history textbook, yeah. because uh, what we what we talk about when we're talking about uh, Western history is chronology, events, uh, making sure that things happened in in the correct order, we recorded in the correct order. Um, you know, obviously, Western history is as slanted as any other well, yeah. version of history. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, bias and, makes its way in regardless. Yeah, and so we play we play with that. I love uh, the opening line of of uh, Braveheart when he says, "Historians will tell tell you I'm a liar," but history was written by people who hanged heroes. You know, like that's, um, there just, there is bias in there. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at like on Columbus day, there was this big debate about, well, should we even be celebrating Columbus day? You know, he used to be this great man. Now he's this killer of people. And, um, history is written with a slant. Mm -hmm. It is. Uh, and so we have to be aware of that, but for, for these guys, it's not an exhaustive history. It's a, we're going to, 
cherry pick the stories that are significant to the point that we're trying to make based on the agenda of our book. Mm-hmm. So what about a story like, uh, say, Jonah, like where he spent three days in a fish? Like, how do we approach something like that that is in that genre of historical narrative but is, I mean, somewhat outlandish? Frankly. Yeah, yeah. And there's, and yeah, there's a number of examples of that. So, like, is it a real story? Well, for some people, they would look at it and go, no, it's just complete metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no reason to assume it's not a real story. Mm-hmm. Now, the bigger question then is, did every detail happen exactly the way it was written? Um, maybe. It is very possible that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and lived three days, and then the fish yacked him out, which, as I have always said, um, if there was ever a scene in the in the movie that I want to see when I get to heaven, that's the part I want to see. I want to see Jonah yacked out. How far <laughs> does he go? Because it says he, la- gets landed, he lands on yeah, the shore. Going for distance. Yeah. I mean, there's some kind of a projectile vomiting going on there. <laughs> You know, did it happen exactly that way? Well, it it very well could have. I mean, there's no reason to say it couldn't have happened. There are some questions textually. The fish that swallows uh, Jonah is masculine. The fish that spits him out is feminine. So there's some textual questions there, like what happens. uh, Is there maybe a bigger point being made beyond just the literal And I think that's the part that we need to wrestle with. Mm -hmm. That's the part that we need to wrestle with. And I would, in, in the interest of being controversial... I would throw the creation narrative out as part of this as well. Like, do we is is Genesis proving a seven day creation? Is it proving a second? Like Moses sits down and he is writing Genesis and he's like, I need to prove that the world was created in seven days. I don't I don't think that was his I don't motivation. think that was his agenda. Doesn't mean there isn't a seven day creation. And it could have very well happened literally exactly the way he wrote it down. But I don't think that that's Moses's agenda. And so for us, we have to just at least be open to the possibility that there are other things that we can learn in addition to how old is the earth, how long did creation take, all of those kinds of things. Um, And those are the things, like these bigger themes of God's not an angry God. That's what Moses is communicating, Mm -hmm. because these people just came out of Egypt as slaves, and he's trying to paint a picture of this God that brought you out isn't like the other gods. And and that story is one that we can really glean from. So there's there's all these other layers. Mm-hmm. Once we give ourselves permission to not have to have every detail figured out literal exactly the way that it was written. And I'm not pushing against a seven-day creation. For people who believe in it, there's some phenomenal research out there on mm-hmm. seven-day creation. I think uh, for, for me, the bigger thing is like – like not discounting people because they don't take a literal reading. Like I see so many debates on, I mean, you know, Facebook is like the worst for this, but you know, it's like, Oh, you don't believe in the literal reading of this part of the Bible. Well, obviously you don't respect the authority of scripture. Right. Right. It's like, well, well, no, you know, it, it's actually, I, I do respect it. I want to understand it in its context. And, you know, because of that, maybe I don't read this literally based on, the things I've researched around it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's the key piece that I, that I would hope to communicate in this understanding of historical narrative is that um, my way of understanding this isn't wrong. It's also not potentially the only way to understand mm-hmm. it. And that gives me grace in the ways that I deal with other people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so big conversation there with that one. Yeah. Uh, I, it was, it, it's a big topic because Forty-three uh, percent of the Bible is historical narrative. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. 43% of it is historical narrative. So um, that's a big deal. If you take the Gospels out of that, which is kind of its own genre, which we're not even going to address here, but um, if you take the Gospels out of that, it's 40%. Like 40% of the Bible is historical narrative. So it's, it's a, a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so that leads us into our next genre, uh, Hebrew poetry. Uh, would be a couple examples of this. Yeah, so Psalms, uh, Lamentations, Song of Solomon, um, uh, great, great examples of that. It's it's. This is the thing that's important about poetry, and for those that for those of our listeners who are literalists with the Bible, every word is literal. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree with you in this: every word is literally what God wanted it to be. <laughs> um, for sure, that's it. And I would say not even every word. I would say every letter is exactly what God wanted it to be. And through the inspiration of His Holy Spirit, He directed people in that direction. Mm-hmm. But I, what we also have to understand is, like David says in the Psalms, you know, my bed floats on a river of tears. Like, is that literal? <laughs> um, like, he's a lot of tears. It's a lot of tears. I've I've yeah. cried a lot. Be a little in my dehydrated life. after that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I have that much water in me. <laughs> um, but so, like, hyperbole is a big part of poetry, mm-hmm. and so that's really significant for us to understand because we can't devise literal doctrines and theologies Mm -hmm. based on hyperbole. That's really dangerous. So like, for example, um, where the Psalms say, no one seeks God, no one is righteous. Well, I totally get the point that he's trying to make. Um, But do we then say, well, then that means we are incapable of responding to God. Therefore, you know, and so we build on this whole doctrine of total Mm -hmm. depravity, which is really dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and I mean, day-to-day conversation, you and I use hyperbole all the time and we, we know that, but when it's in the Bible, you see it and it's like, oh, what's Bible? It's, you know. Yep. So, um, one other quick thing about that, and we got to keep time in mind here, but different books of the Bible can have like multiple genres within one book, right? Like, like Genesis, early Genesis is poetry, right? Yeah. Well, yes. And, and that's, um, we yeah, might be in the interest of being controversial here. again, um, <laughs> like the creation narrative is a poem. Mm-hmm. It's a it's called it's called a chiasm. That's mm-hmm. it's that's what it is. Doesn't make it not literal. Doesn't make it not real. It just it's a poem. That's mm-hmm. the genre that it is, and we have to we have to make sure that we understand it for its for what it is. Yeah. Uh, right. Third genre law. Yeah. So this is. Um, if you read Leviticus, like I know that all of our people that are listening to this have well, I mean, if they go to church here, they've been through a whole <laughs> they've series. They've been through on a whole it. series on Leviticus. In our defense, we did take very large chunks of Leviticus <laughs> and work it through. We didn't. Um, yeah. We it, didn't it was get, a fifty thousand foot view for sure. Yeah, we didn't get into the weeds too much. Deuteronomy's like law reads like a legal code. Yeah. Super it's, fun. Yeah, riveting. Now within that. There are um, some, there's lists of laws. There's also some tremendous truths that we can deduce about God. Um, so it's valuable and mm-hmm. it's useful, but um, it's it's important for us to understand what the law said. Now, in qualification, we are not necessarily trying to, in this space, unpack the efficacy of the laws themselves, because some of them are weird. <laughs> But we understand what we're reading so that we can understand that it was understand it as it was meant to be understood. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the laws were meant to be um, understood as having room for interpretation. Mm. That room for interpretation 
becomes more about understanding the spirit of the law, which is rooted in the heart of our God. So how we interpret application of the law becomes really significant because that's where we put our God on display, mm. is in the interpretation. The problem was, uh, over the years, they developed what they call Talmud, which is the fence around Torah. It's Talmud explains some of these pieces that are needing further unpacking. Mm-hmm. Um, and a great example of that is, this is one I always use, is like the Festival of Sukkot. It says in the Bible, like, this is one of the big three pilgrim holidays. Like, if you are if you are serious about your faith, you're going to be in Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot. And God says, you're going to do this for seven days, and you're going to go to the Temple Mount every day, and you're going to hold three branches and piece of fruit. Moving on. <laughs> like, what? What do I even do with that? And so, well, you get you get three branches and a piece of fruit. Yeah, guess. and you go. Yeah. So, and so, and so, how that gets celebrated has been expanded and unpacked over time. That's Talmud. That's well, they're like, well, what do we do with the branches and the fruit once we get there? And and what is what does it mean to celebrate it? And and what does it look like for us to be in temporary dwelling? All that stuff. Um, all that stuff becomes places where, because of our interpretation, we start to put on display what our God's really like. And so, mm-hmm. the spirit of the law is just as important as the letter of the law. Cool. Uh, next genre we want to look at, wisdom literature. Yeah, so wisdom literature is this combination of Hebrew poetry and law, um, and it, it gives us opportunities to kind of just think uh, generally about how we can live successfully. Mm-hmm. So this would be your Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. Yeah, yeah. Like the Proverbs are great little – they're just little sound bites mm. of here's a little – quip. <laughs> um, you know, the, Very tweetable. Yeah. Whatever that is, it, the, it is – Proverbs is the Twitter of the Bible. That's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's that's the, the way it is. Ecclesiastes, same kind of thing. It's this wisdom literature, just this like we're exploring the depths of humanity and the principles that we choose to make decisions by. And in the end, what we discover is that the whole duty of man is to fear the Lord and keep his commands. Mm-hmm. Uh, prophecy. Yeah, prophecy is a great one. It's easy, easy one to deal with. Um, here's here's what I'll say about prophecy. Um, and this is Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all the major and minor prophets. Nehemiah. Yeah, Nehemiah. All, all the ayahs. I, the ayahs. And, and Obadiah. Ha, ha, Habakkuk. Yep. Get all old, the ayahs. Good old Habakkuk. And Habakkuk. Um, so uh, he doesn't really fit. <laughs> But this is an important genre of literature for us to understand, because what we often do with prophecy is we jump to this conclusion that all the prophecy is this kind of like Nostradamus. It's like this predictive, Mm -hmm. we're trying to foretell the future and and create all these new ways of thinking in the the past or in the future. And and I want to say that the vast majority of prophecy is not predictive. Mm. The... There's two kinds of prophecy in the Bible. There's what I call foretelling, which is a predictive future. And then there's forthtelling, which is kind of like this. If I'm standing on a mountainside and I'm looking at a a intersection of a highway and a railroad track, and I look at that and I see a truck coming on the road and I see a train coming on the railroad track, and I can see long before it happens, if something doesn't change, Mm -hmm. those two things are going to crash. I can see it. Yeah. Um, that's not predictive. It's 
I can see what lies ahead based on where things stand yeah. right now. And that's the vast majority of prophecy. One way I've seen a lot of like biblical prophecy defined is speaking truth to power. Yep. You're seeing this thing that's coming is true. It's going to happen. And you're speaking it to the people who have the power to change that. Yep. Yep. And it, it is in, in the old Testament specifically prophecy is a call to account for unrighteousness. Like God sends a prophet. If you think about the law is the, the right thinking about how God wants us to live. The prophet is the call to the action. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the law and the prophet always walk hand in hand throughout scripture. Mm. There is a call to account for unrighteousness. This is important thing. The goal of prophecy, though, is not to say, listen, you're going to pay for what you did wrong. It's to call them back to the place where the people are telling the proper story about who their God is. That's what prophecy does. And that's really important for us to understand. God has called his people to put him on display to show the world what he's like. And um, there's a point at which in our compromising of that story, we become the anti-story. Mm-hmm. We're telling not just an inaccurate story of, of who our God is, but the opposite story of who our God is. And when that happens, God has to intervene. He has to intervene so that, not to make us pay for what we did wrong, but so that we can come back to tell a proper story. And that's, if you read the end of the prophets, that's universally the case. They're all saying, this is, God is going to restore you. He's not just going to punish you and leave you in the dust to make sure you understand. This is always about bringing people back to tell the right story about who he is. Uh, next genre, it only occurs within the Gospels, I'm assuming, a uh, parable. Yeah. So, yeah. So, interestingly enough, uh, the first parable is in Judges 9. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, there's parables all through the Old, the Old Testament. It's a major piece of communication. It certainly is ramped up in, in the life of Jesus. But um, <clears throat> I, I want to say this about parables, and we'll move through it quickly. This one will probably be its own episode at some point. <laughs> Um, There's a lot of them. Yeah. Jesus, parables are not meant to confuse people. They're not. And and what a lot of people will say is, well, there's a passage where they the disciples ask him, why do you speak to people in parables? Well, that doesn't mean that they were meant to confuse people. What, what it did was it pushed them back into the text. Mm. Because so Jesus tells 38 parables that we have recorded. Um, he only explains three of them. In, the, in what we have recorded, and those three are the most hotly debated parables <laughs> in the whole Bible. Like, the ones that he actually explains yeah, are that, the ones... That's that, where it gets even more confusing. Yeah, yeah. For, the, for like example, for the parable of the soils, he has this story of, um, you know, the, some, some of the seed fell on rocks, and it, was, uh, it sprung up quickly, but then it died because it had no root. Well, <laughs> well, think about that. What that means is somebody could discover their faith, find salvation, and then lose it. Well, that has massive theological and doctrinal implications. So um, it's one of those things that for us, uh, we have to, the, the purpose of the parable isn't for us to um, be confused. The purpose of the parable is to drive us back into the text. And there's a couple of ways that the that the parable does that. One is that it parallels ideas and concepts being taught in the Old Testament. But the second thing is that every parable has a remez. Uh, every parable that Jesus tells specifically has a remez. Um, they didn't call it remez in the first century. They called it that later, but it was the hint was there. And it's a hint that anchors us back to a Hebrew passage, a Hebrew scriptures passage, mm-hmm. the Old Testament. In that passage, we discover the meaning of the parable. And what Jesus is doing with his parables that is absolutely stinking brilliant is he's anchoring them back in the stories that he's telling 
to these passages that they're neglecting. So they're like, we all do this. We overemphasize one passage over Mm -hmm. another, or one passage means more to us than another. Everybody Mm -hmm. does this. What Jesus is doing is saying, you've got some passages really good, but this one you're missing. And so he tells a story around it to drive him back into that passage so that he can, for example, over and over and over again, he's calling him back to being a light for all the nations. Like this is always what it's been about, um, that we're supposed to show off our God, not keep him from, not keep people from having access to him. So that's, those are the kinds of passages that um, Jesus is constantly reminding him to. Gotcha. And, and parables, there they would be like fiction, right? I mean, Jesus isn't telling a story about like an event that actually historically happened necessarily. Not in a literal sense yeah. at all. And it depends on how he's anchoring the remez. Yeah. Some of them, it's more obvious than others that he's paralleling another story, but it's not a literal, like, yeah. and this is how the event yeah. happened. Yeah, this, this is what somebody told me last week about their experience with yeah. their boss or but like with the But like with the parable of the sowers, a sower, or, or the soils, a sower went out to sow some seed. And some of it fell on the path. Does that happen? Yeah. Yep. Every <laughs> yeah, time yeah. they sow seed, just because, just by virtue of the way they sow yeah. seed. Yep. Some of, of course, that all happens, but it's a literal example. Probably not. Yep. All right. Uh, we got two more of these to get through. Uh, letter, epistle. Uh, yeah. This is, so this is a lot of the New Testament, right? Yeah. This is a lot of the New Testament, and you have to understand a letter as a letter. Um, they're very didactic in nature. It's almost like a lecture for for the the peanut gallery. What's didactic? <laughs> The, uh, sorry, sorry. They're, I didn't go to Bible college, Aaron. Um, yeah. Didactic means it's very instructional. Okay. Uh, it has a lot of teaching in it, just like point by point teaching. Gotcha. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is because most of the letters are written to the Roman world. Um, the other is, and so they're more Western in their thinking. The other is because um, these weren't, they were dealing with real issues. As the church is emerging, they're having all these questions about how they're supposed to function in the world. And they're questions that um, the people who wrote the Bible wouldn't have thought of because they're Eastern. They're not bad questions. They're just different than they would have thought of. And so the the New Testament becomes written to start answering some of those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, the letters, interestingly enough, weren't meant to be read. Um, they're meant to be presented almost like in a theater style. So like mm. you have a, a person who, so Paul writes a letter and he sends Phoebe to the church in Rome uh-huh. and on the way she's practicing, like she's reading this and she's, so when she gets there, she rolls open the scroll like a, like a herald and presents. Huh. So she's working on voice inflection and she's working on emotion and where's the parts where I get quiet and where's the parts where I, like, that's how a letter was meant to be um, understood. And that mm-hmm. changes things. Yeah. I think it's important to understand that the the background, the person writing the letter and the people they're writing to for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause context matters because they're yeah. dealing with real issues from mm-hmm. real people in a real place at a real time. Yeah. All right. Our final genre, we, we got into this a little bit last time we talked about context, but apocalyptic literature, everyone's favorite. Yeah, and I would say um, apocalyptic literature is uh, imagery and metaphor. Mm-hmm. And anytime that you live in that world, um, it's really easy to make much ado about nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, how, would, how would you say that differs from poetry? So apocalyptic literature follows a specific pattern. Poetry is about um, flowery ideas and concepts. Mm-hmm. Apocalyptic literature always is birthed out of we have a group of people who are suffering 
And there's a story that emerges about this group of people who are being oppressed. And then there's a moment where the story switches and God comes in and delivers his people. And that story, that apocalyptic story deals with the finality of the oppressor and the liberation of the oppressed. And that's really important because when you see an apocalyptic story emerge in the Bible, it's built out of that. For example, Daniel, which is very apocalyptic, Mm -hmm. is rooted in the Babylonian captivity. Um, Revelation is rooted in this oppression um, from Domitian uh, for the for the seven churches of Revelation, specifically for the church in Ephesus and how difficult that was. But anyway, um, the, it's it's built around this theme that, guys, hang in there. It is going to be bad, and I'm not trying to tell you it's not, but it is going to be better. It is going to resolve. It's only going to be bad for a little while, and then things are going to get better because our God is still God. Good stuff. All right, there you have it, eight literary genres of the Bible. If you're wanting to dive into this topic some more, you can go back and check out the show notes for part two of that biblical context conversation. Uh, There's lots of good authors and books listed there. And if you'd like to hear an episode taking a deeper look at any one of these genres, we'd love to hear from you. Email Aaron at liferotp.com, subject line, a better conversation. Also, I believe this is our last episode of 2018. So if you're listening to this on the brink of a new year, we hope your holidays have been fantastic and we look forward to many more of these conversations in 2019.